You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi there, listeners. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And uh, I just want to say hi. We're really glad you're listening tonight, but we're in the fourth month of our uh, observation of Russia's assault on Ukraine. And what's happening today will form the basis for the national security laws of tomorrow. So my guest this week is from the Ukraine. It's Yevgeny. I may occasionally call him Eugene Vindman, a colonel in the U.S. Army, a former colonel in the U.S. Army, JAG Corps, who served on the National Security Council from 2018 to 2020. He's retiring this summer. And the views that he's going to give us tonight are, of course, his own and not those of the U.S. government. But he's the author of recent articles on Putin's war, including one entitled Putin's War is an Existential Crisis for the United Nations, which was written in Foreign Policy magazine. Yev was born in Ukraine and immigrated to the United States in 1979 when he and his twin brother were just four years old. Yev, we're really glad you're here tonight. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Alyssa. Looking forward to a great chat. Ukraine has been on my mind for a long time, but certainly four calendar months, not quite four months of fighting. It is hard to watch. And I can only imagine that it's hard to watch times a million for you and your family since you are from there. But before we get into the United Nations and the central role of countries in that region who are sort of on the edge of democracies, let's start with some very basic principles regarding the law of war. Because we're all watching and we're wondering how the law war might be being violated. But there are four sort of guiding principles that form the foundation for the law of war. Tell me what you're seeing with respect to adherence to those principles in the Ukraine right now on both sides. Sure. Well, the law of war is a area of law, uh, Lex Dallas. So you really need to have a background and expertise to understand it. It's different than practically any other area of international law. Specifically, it's an area of public international law. And it's based primarily on the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions, and additional protocols, as well as some customary law over the hundreds of years that we've had wars, thousands, certainly. But the four principles of the law of war are the principle of military necessity, principle of distinction, principle of proportionality, and the principle of humanity, sometimes also considered the use of lawful weapons. The law of war, the purpose is basically to minimize the damage in war to that which is necessary to achieve military objectives and protect civilians and those out of combat from the horrors of war. War in and of itself is horrible, and frankly, some of those horrors cannot be avoided. The principle of military necessity generally means that you attack targets only if there is a military purpose to attacking them. You don't attack just to destroy everything. The principle of distinction is distinguishing those targets that are military targets from those that are purely civilian in nature or not related to military objectives. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we talk about what the potential laws, law of war violations are. But generally speaking, shelling a city violates a principle of distinction, even though taking the city may be a valid military objective. And certainly in the perception of of U.S. and the United Kingdom, how you take it and how you target individual sectors or sub-targets in the city is important. And the third principle is the principle of proportionality. And the gist is that if the loss of civilian life or the damage to civilian targets or or civilian 
objects is greater than is necessary to or really acceptable to achieve a military objective, then you shouldn't attack that target. So for instance, if there is one soldier on the street corner, but they're in a crowd of, you know, a thousand civilians, then it would not be proportional to attack that soldier, even though he himself is a lawful target. Really, the final principle is the principle of humanity, of preventing unnecessary suffering in war. And generally speaking, this, this principle is accepted as using only lawful weapons. So glass ammunition, for instance, is prohibited and using lawful weapons in a lawful manner. So not shooting an enemy just to injure or maim them out of cruelty, but to eliminate the threat. Okay, well, it's hard to believe that they're being adhered to when every day we're shown where clearly apartment buildings in particular, which seem to be extremely popular in the major cities in Ukraine, just being shelled and displacing literally millions of individuals. But let's let's turn to the United Nations. You've written a little bit and you've talked a little bit about parallels that you see today with Ukraine and Emperor Haile Selassie's plea to the League of Nations. Why don't we talk a little bit about how Zelensky's entreaty to the United Nations might resemble that in a number of ways? And what do you think about the ability of the United Nations at this point to do anything to prevent this level of state aggression, even what has been characterized as genocide? Yeah, so the the last question is probably the easier question, and the answer is nothing uh, as it relates to this particular case, because Russia is a veto holding member, permanent member of the Security Council. There are actions that the General Assembly can take and has taken to condemn Russia's action. There is no action to be taken by members of the Security Council and the members of the United Nations to prevent this armed aggression and unlawful use of force in violation of the basic principles of the United Nations, because Russia will veto that action. Really, that's where the parallels come to what we saw before World War II in in, uh, 1936. Emperor Celeste was the emperor of Ethiopia, and they were under attack from Italy at the time under the fascist ruler uh, Benito Mussolini. Very much like Russia's attack on Ukraine, it was unprovoked. It was a power grab, a land grab. It was immensely tragic and involved really barbaric means. Uh, Mussolini actually used chemical weapons to attack cities. And he appealed to the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, to basically execute a common defense of Ethiopia, similar to the principles that we have now, where countries can ask the UN and UN states to intercede on an aggression. Unfortunately, and I think this led to the horrors of World War II just a few short years later, his pleas fell on deaf ears. There was sympathy from the great powers for Ethiopia, but no real actions were taken. And interestingly enough, during that period of time, Italy and Germany were in in opposition to each other. That alliance that formed just a few short years later may have never come to pass. And here we are in the 21st century where we have the largest country in Europe, a budding democracy under attack by its neighbor, a sort of a return to the law of the jungle where might makes right. This war now in 70 plus days looks very different than it did when it started on February 24th. 
at that time, the threat to Ukraine was existential. Many predictions that Kiev would fall within days. The pleas to the UN at that time certainly appeared to be existential. I think the international community has come together to some degree in support of Ukraine, providing weapons and humanitarian aid, but certainly no direct intercession to prevent the aggression that, that Russia is engaging in. You know, when the League of Nations failed before World War II, that spelled the demise of the League of Nations. And shortly after World War II, the UN was formed. And so now we're potentially on the precipice where the UN is in danger of, of being a failed organization. And this is part of what my, my piece in foreign policy was about, where we either need to make adjustments to the UN or create a new organization that can, in fact, prevent what we're seeing today, which is aggression by a larger neighbor against a smaller neighbor. The purpose of the UN is to prevent that kind of, the kind of aggression we're seeing. Yeah, and I do wonder if it's even worse now because there's a degree of ongoing virtue signaling, you know, Ukrainian flags everywhere, words of empathy, but clearly President Zelensky's, you know, calling for the cavalry and they're not coming. It's also difficult to watch. At the same time, I think it's probably understandable why there aren't sort of boots on the ground being delivered in this moment, but it's agonizing nevertheless. But let's turn to another organization. You know, people watching this war have also, I know Ukraine is not a NATO nation, but I think there has been up until this point sort of open speculation about the usefulness of NATO. I mean, you might remember during the last administration, the president made a point of saying you need to pay your 2% GDP into your defense and you need to provide what needs to be provided to NATO. What do you think this conflict may have revealed about NATO and sort of the viability of its weapons, aircraft, and its general readiness? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. When I worked in the White House, NATO international organizations, the UN were all within my portfolio. The ICC was within my portfolio. So I, I remember discussions about, you know, NATO and NATO members paying their fair share. And I think there's there's certainly some validity associated with that request. Otherwise, you have free riding. On the other hand, NATO has demonstrated itself to be invaluable, I think, in the current conflict. In fact, so invaluable that members of the European community that had for decades been on the sidelines, neutrals, are now fully engaged by all reports in asking to be members of NATO, Finland and Sweden in particular, which would be a massive boon to NATO. And they are military powers that would add great capability to the NATO alliance. So NATO, I think, is definitely proven itself to be a worthwhile venture. And watching the performance of the Russian forces in Ukraine, there would be no match for any reasonable sized NATO member. NATO standards to join, uh, which I think Ukraine in many ways has met those standards, are very high levels of interoperability, combined arms, joint warfare. And NATO is, frankly, a very worthwhile venture. I think the president's call or warning to Putin, not one inch, not one step in NATO, NATO countries has chilled, at least for now, any appetite. Uh, I think Vladimir Putin has bit off more than he can chew in Ukraine alone. So any further adventures into NATO, I think, are on the back burner. And it'll take some time for the Russian forces to rebuild. 
think NATO has demonstrated that it's a, it's a worthwhile venture. We have reinforced our eastern flank in Poland, in Romania, and in Slovakia, and in the Baltic states. It's a formidable force, and it counterbalances any great power that we face with our allies. Yeah, and I think your point about Sweden and Finland is in no small potential benefit to NATO as an alliance in the long term, because Norway is a NATO nation that has a border very north in the direction of Russia. And to add those two other countries would actually be quite a force, I think, that we haven't seen heretofore. So that will be interesting. It's also interesting to watch how quickly these alliances redeveloped after sort of years of more or less languishing. But let's talk about one other issue which we're watching or that is sort of signaled by all of this. And this is the possible role of nearby countries that some of which function really nothing more than Russian proxies. Belarus comes to mind. Are these countries providing full-throated support or fully armed support? And if they aren't, why not? And can they be kept out of this conflict? through any sort of mechanism? Yeah, so the short answer is generally they're not providing full-throated support because they see how how poorly Russian forces are faring. Belarus, certainly in the initial phases of the war, provided a base and a jumping off point for Russian forces to attack. The most threatening access of attack against Kiev was the access that emanated out of Belarus. So they have provided by far the most significant support for Russia. They had threatened to enter the war more vigorously with their military forces earlier on, but that hasn't matured. In many ways, that's due to Russian performance, but also the fact that Lukashenko and his government have a very fragile hold on power in Belarus. If you recall, a couple of years ago, there were mass protests, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And although those protests have quieted down some, I think he's in a position where he's got to retain the vast majority of his military and security forces to control his own population. And so this kind of relates to another piece that I wrote in Foreign Affairs about keeping Belarus out of the war. I think that's critical. And frankly, what I would like to see is even more pressure on Belarus because they don't have clean hands in this conflict by some measures of international law. Certainly by the measures of the hate conventions from 1907, which uh, there are arguments on whether those are still valid or not, they violated neutrality. And by even more recent measures, they have potentially violated or become co-belligerents given the level of support, the fact that they're providing bases for Russian forces and jumping off points for attack jets and, and things like that. So they need to be punished. They need to be held accountable for their actions arguably maybe to a slightly lesser degree than the, than the Russians, but still in very significant degree. And that's why they've suffered consequences related to sanctions, uh, significant sanctions, the likes of which no other country other than Russia has seen. In my opinion, and one of the things I write about is really putting them even further on the back foot and splintering them, if at all possible, from Russia Russia's idea of how this conflict would have played out would be if they had successfully conquered Ukraine, that would have been the first step. So Ukraine, Belarus, and likely Moldova would have been reabsorbed into a new Russian empire. I think that dream is potentially fading. It's not completely clear with that, whether that's the case. 
But with the loss of the ability to conquer Ukraine currently and potentially splintering Belarus off by putting additional pressure through sanctions, by having NATO exercises right on the border with Belarus, so they're forced to reinforce their border with NATO and leaving vulnerabilities that their own citizens can take advantage of, I think would be very worthwhile ventures to destabilize that the government and really put a nail in the coffin of Putin's plans for a Russian empire. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how his plans go. And I do wonder what role corruption and graft have played in some of these military failures that we're witnessing and just seemingly scattershod, unfocused shelling and targeting of civilians and the like. You do wonder how much of that is really coming down from the top. Some days it doesn't look like it, although I guess arguably there could be some grand strategy that I don't see. But in any event, let's move on to the weapons. Uh, There are a couple things with respect to weapons, the first of which obviously is the threat by Putin about the possible use of nuclear weapons. And I want to start with that before we talk about some of the other things that we're seeing vis-a-vis what I think are arguably experimental weapons and weapons techniques. But on this threat of nuclear weapons, do you take Putin seriously? And if so, is there any way to give this man an exit ramp? Or is that impossible given the way power transfers in Russia, which is not smoothly and democratically? Yeah, so I think it's very important for Putin not to have an exit ramp. One of the the greatest dangers of the current conflict is, well, really the erosion of the rules-based international order that's developed since World War II and since the the collapse of the Soviet Union. And if he is granted any measure of success where he can absorb Donetsk and Luhansk, the breakaway republics, then that in many ways reinforces the might-makes-right axiom. And other powers, like China, uh, looking at Taiwan, will take lessons from that. That maybe the attack and the process to win the additional territory is painful, but you succeed in the end. It's not what we want. Uh, the the future, the rules-based order to look like. And so I think we have to take the threat of nuclear weapons use seriously, but I think we also need to look at it realistically and whether it's it's empty threat or whether there is something behind it. And by all accounts, despite the nuclear saber rattling, there's really not a great deal of evidence that Putin will use nuclear weapons. In fact, many of the statements that have recently come out from people like Medvedev and even Putin himself talked about use of nuclear weapons primarily in the case of an existential threat. And the success of the Russian adventure in Ukraine is not an existential threat. There's no attack on Russia. And any threat to Putin is, is purely internal. In my opinion, as a, as a sort of a keen observer of the conflict, The U.S. government has made that assessment, took a while to get there, but they've made that assessment. That is why we're seeing more muscular, more full-throated support for Ukraine in in recent weeks with the addition of many new types of weapons platforms, the heavy howitzers and tanks. I think that while we can't completely discount uh, the nuclear threat, we also have to understand that the use of nuclear weapons is an existential threat to both Russia and the United States, if you think about the, the concept of mutually assured destruction. And so I, I don't think there's a realistic chance that this conflict will go nuclear right now. It's hard to predict where this conflict leads in the future, and that's, that's really where a lot of the danger comes from, 
it's easy to start wars. It's much harder to to finish them. But I think for Western purposes, a clear defeat for Putin uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine is, is going to be critical. All right. Let's let's move, though, to some of the sort of more granular aspects of the weapons that are being used. We've heard about signs that revealed that there were cluster bombs used. We've also heard about an array of I think what could be described at this point as somewhat existential weaponry and devices, things like loitering drones, distraction drones. And it's my understanding, at least it's been publicly reported, that what Ukraine was able to do was uh, sink the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, the Moscovo, by the use of a distraction drone, maybe one from Turkey, and a basically anti-ship cruise missile that they had sort of homemade with some Soviet legacy parts. There may be a belief that some of these weapons in and of the, themselves would be somehow violative, rather, of international law, but it's not so much the weapon, or is it? Yeah, so the weapons relate to their principle of humanity and, and frankly, to older international law associated with the Hague Conventions, where certain weapons uh, and, and the, the progeny of that, and including the additional protocols and the chemical weapons, conventions. But generally speaking, weapons in and of themselves, if they are lawful, and the United States actually reviews every single weapon system in the inventory to ensure that it complies with the law of war. So it is not designed to cause cruel and wanton damage to people, to cause human suffering. Glass bullets, for instance, are specifically banned because you can't x-ray them and it's hard to find once somebody's been shot with that. And then also the lawful use of a weapon in combat. So if a weapon is, is lawful, it can still be used in an unlawful manner. For instance, if you're using a rifle to shoot you know, legs and arms of an enemy soldier to cause human suffering, that would be an illegal use of a lawful weapon. Now, I think it's important that we distinguish the way a weapon is used in a particular environment from whether a weapon itself is illegal. Thermobarics, there are numerous commentators uh, on TV that talked about thermobarics, vacuum bombs, that as illegal weapons, and, and they're not. There are thermobaric weapons in the US inventory, and they're quite useful for penetrating bunkers and destroying heavily built up defended locations. It's the use of those weapons in an urban environment, which violates the principle of distinction if there are civilians in that area, and proportionality, that is the problem. It's not necessarily the use of thermal barracks. If thermal barracks, for instance, are used against Ukrainian soldiers with no destruction or injury to civilians, completely lawful. You can use a thermobaric weapon, which is designed to destroy entire complexes on one soldier, because that soldier is a lawful target. Cluster munitions are, are another weapon that not necessarily in and of itself, although there are some conventions that prohibit cluster munitions. The U.S. is not a signatory to that convention because they are very useful weapons for the United States for destroying airfields. And so these are complicated questions that the U.S. has its own perspective on and Western powers have their own perspective on. But the indiscriminate use of weapons like these in urban environments would be a violation, even if the weapon itself uh, is not a violation of the law of war. Well, you mentioned urban environments. One of the, I think, things that people are looking at right now 
is uh, the absolute destruction of some of these cities, beautiful cities in Ukraine. And I think that there hasn't really been a dialogue about how any war ends with respect to holding the warrior accountable for reconstruction. And there's a whole industry and a skill set around post-conflict reconstruction. But I feel like we're way beyond anything that that is as a discipline. Are there any legal mechanisms to force Russia to bear the cost of rebuilding Ukraine? So this is not an area necessarily within my, my skill set. But I am aware of a couple of pieces of legislation that intend to, for instance, there are a number of, of Russian assets that are in Western institutions and U.S. banking institutions that propose to take seized assets from the Russian government, potentially oligarchs, and through some mechanism, use them in the rebuilding efforts in Ukraine. I can't speak to any more detail on that point. But uh, I hope to learn more about that as I have some interest in helping Ukraine rebuild itself once uh, this conflict goes over one day. Yes. Well, the interesting thing is those assets, I think, arguably, even in the control of the oligarchs, really are the assets of the Russian people who I think it could be argued have been pretty hoodwinked into believing this, although maybe not all of them. Maybe this is just something going on in Russia, just like it does everywhere else, where there's a certain desire to believe certain realities Let's go back to history, because I think you like to look at history. At least that's been what I've seen of your writings. As you look back on the history of Russia, including the Russian Empire as it once existed, do you have any sense or any beliefs in your own mind about how this conflict could end? I I wrote about this in uh, one of the two articles that I previously mentioned, but Vladimir Putin has demonstrated himself to be a strong man that's not particularly strong. And in a country like Russia and in a dictatorship, that sounds like a recipe for his demise. There are whispers and rumbles in the corridors of the Kremlin and and other halls of power from oligarchs about this war being a, a very bad call. And the government itself has demonstrated a complete lack of understanding. A, A number of the strategic assumptions about how this war would play out for Russia were massively off the mark. And when you make the strategic assumptions are wrong, that you will be greeted in the country as a liberator. We found this out ourselves in Iraq, and you're not. You're fighting a major war, and your soldiers are not prepared. There is no logistics to support it. Then you're going to do very poorly in the conflict. And so I think this conflict will play out certainly over the course of the next several months, potentially many months, but the Russians look like they're going to lose. And so there are some risks associated with escalation. The Russians have a doctrine of escalate to de-escalate, and they've threatened, for instance, the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. There is a fear of use of, of chemical weapons in Ukraine. The U.S. has warned against that. The West has warned against that. Um, is it enough to dissuade Vladimir Putin? It's hard to tell. I think they are losing on the ground, which makes uh, Putin that much more dangerous in the short term. I I don't think that he, if he loses this struggle and at the the rate of casualties that he's sustaining, the support will erode eventually. I don't see how he stays in power. 
there's not a really good palace coup history in Russia. I mean, Stalin died on his deathbed after eliminating millions of, of citizens and many other senior Soviet leaders. I don't know if this will be a palace coup or if there'll be a popular uprising. There's maybe a better track record of a popular uprising, uh, 1917 and the revolution. But it's it's hard for me to imagine uh, that he retains power even five years from now, having lost a major war in Ukraine. Well, I do wonder, and I've heard some of the uh, Russian-Americans, at least in my neighborhood, talk about those around him, and he is the devil we know, and that there are others in the wings who, frankly, have as many problems as he does and will be as dictatorial and difficult to deal with. I think we all would like to see some sort of a palace coup, but only if he wouldn't be replaced by somebody worse. Yeah, my, my perspective on that is the fear of the unknown. I don't put a huge amount of stock into that because the devil we know is bad enough where, you know, we, we may need to deal with the consequences of whoever replaces him, but we know that what we have now is unbearable. Now, there are significant risks to Russia, the state of Russia. I think that if there is a, a violent overthrow of Vladimir Putin, I, I don't know if that will be the case. But the entire eastern part of the country bordering China is very lightly defended. And, you know, there, there are rumblings from the territorial governors about potentially wanting to split off. And so Russia fracturing into many smaller countries, all of which have nuclear weapons, is a danger. But it's an unforeseen danger. And frankly, I don't know that there's any way to control that. I don't think anybody proposes that we allow Vladimir Putin to win the war. So I'm not sure there's a way to control that that outcome. And it reminds me a little bit of the George H.W. Bush's speech on the eve of the collapse of the Soviet Union, known as the Chicken Kiev speech, where he attempted to dissuade the, the republics from breaking apart from the Soviet Union. So uh, it's hard to imagine a president advocating for the Soviet Union remaining in some form or fashion rather than breaking apart now. Well, today, the Washington Post reports that the CIA has been dispatching instructions to Russians, I think it was via telegram, on how to pass information that they might have to the CIA in order to assist with opposing Putin's effort here in Ukraine. So I want to thank you for coming in tonight. It's been really great to have you. I'm really interested in the things that you're writing, and I hope that you're going to continue to do that. I know this is incredibly close to you since you're from there. And I hope that you and your brother are doing quite well during this time, despite what toll it must be taking on you every single day. So I hope you'll come back and talk to us again in the future. Well, thank you for having me on the show. And, and Ukraine is important to me as it is, frankly, to the majority of the American people. I've, I've seen polling indicating that 77 or 72 percent of Americans support providing the Ukrainians weapons, which is about as united as the American people are on any. There is no other topic I can think of that we're as united on, and which is really quite amazing because it's, it's support for democracy. I would like to see how we can build on that unity in, in other areas. But I see it as a national security issue for the United States. First and foremost, it is a fight, as the president said, of democracy against dictatorship. And as a, as a military officer retiring, but uh, after 25 years, but still focused on the topic, I am first and foremost concerned about national security. 
But I also feel for the Ukrainian people, it's a, it's a terrible tragedy watching the news just about every day and seeing the attacks on civilians and the human suffering is really sad. So thank you for having me on the show and for allowing me to talk about the war in Ukraine. Well, it's been my pleasure. And I would also add to your comment, I understand that Canada has an even higher ratio. I didn't realize how many Ukrainians had settled in Canada over a period of time, but I do have a girlfriend from Edmonton who is of Ukrainian descent, and she corrects me. I understand that the numbers there are even higher in terms of wanting Putin gone and wanting to see the end of this and Russia forced into some sort of reparations. All right, folks, thanks for listening to NSLT. You can share this episode with a friend, maybe discuss it over a drink or coffee. Subscribe to NSLT and send us comments and feedback on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Or you can send us an email to nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. And remember that me and any other lawyer on this podcast in general is here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Remember the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep you informed and give you context on fast-moving developments in the world that will bring national security law into action. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.